Hey, this is Lee. I really hope you've been enjoying the Business of Marketing podcast. It's from marketers and for marketers, and my intention is to bring you value, experiences, and insights that you can use. Also, if your company would like to have their own podcast, I would love to help. The team at Content Monster specializes in B2B podcasts. So if we can help, contact me at contentmonster.com. That's contentmonster, M-O-N-S-T-A.com. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Business of Marketing Podcast where we have conversations with some of the most influential and thought-provoking minds in marketing, sales, and business. And here's your host, A. Lee Judge. Welcome again to the Business of Marketing. I'm A. Lee Judge. As marketing and the technology behind it evolves, it's always insightful to speak to the people who have been deeply involved with the things that most of us usually only read about. I often use the line from Hamilton when referring to these people as the ones who were in the room where it happened. And today's guest has been in many of those rooms, from the room where companies like Apple brought us life-changing innovations to rooms in Microsoft, Google, and recent game-changing companies like Canva. He has written 15 books beginning in 1987 with The Macintosh Way. His latest two books are Wise Guy and The Art of the Start 2.0. And for obvious reasons, I'm a fan of his podcasts, and which we'll talk about that later on in the conversation. So let's get to the conversation and welcome to the podcast, Guy Kawasaki. Thank you. Thank you, Lee Judge. It's a privilege <laughs> and an honor to be here. Welcome. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Um, so to start out, Guy, rather than going through the traditional like origin story, I want to hear from you about two or three of the biggest, like, groundbreaking technologies that you were part of before they broke ground. Well, huh. Well, uh, obviously, number one is Macintosh. I joined the Macintosh division in September of 1983. It was not announced till January of 1984. And I have started and funded a handful of companies, so I was involved with many of them, but most of them were kind of singles, you know, maybe doubles, not home runs. The true home run, the out-of-the-park grand slam, you know, seventh inning, point to the stands and say, okay, I'm going to hit it there. That's definitely Canva. So Canva is just rocking. So I, I basically conveniently tell people that I, I started with Apple. I worked at a Google division in the middle, and then I worked with Canva. So I'm three for three now. Yeah, it's total bullshit. I'm really like <laughs> three for 30, but, you know, the victor gets to define. <laughs> it's, it's his story, right? <laughs> it's my history to write, God damn it. <laughs> Yeah, and it, you know, if you if you attempt to Google or, or Wiki guy, you'll see a long, long resume of, of those other thirty. But uh, you know, you always notice those ones that stick out, like the apples and Googles, and, and now Canva, right? Well, I mean, you know, if you had to pick three companies to stick out, <laughs> um, Apple, Google, and Canva, and Mercedes Benz would not be bad, not be <laughs> bad examples. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want to get into this. Um, you know, you popular, popularized, I guess, going back to Apple, this title of chief evangelist. 
Yeah. And well, there, there was Jesus before me, but yeah, there's a <laughs> 2,000 year gap. Chief. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the head cheese. Chief executive. Yeah, the head cheese evangelist. <laughs> and, you know, I've heard you, and I'm glad you mentioned it that way. I've heard you uh, describe evangelists as someone who brings the good news. Yes. So, you know, share with us more about what that role looks like today and why any company would need a chief evangelist. Yes. So, uh, to, to repeat what you said a little bit, evangelism comes from a Greek word meaning bringing the good news. So what an evangelist does is bring the good news. There was this other guy with the initials JC. He brought the good news of eternal life. I brought the good news of increased creativity and productivity with a computer called Macintosh. I am currently bringing the good news that you can become a better communicator with Canva because it enables you to become a good graphic designer. So good news is better communication, better designing, more creativity, more pr productivity. So that's the good news that I as an evangelist brought. Now, uh, I, I would make the case that evangelism is probably the, the purest form of sales or the purest form of marketing. And by that, I mean that everybody in sales and marketing is trying to make their quota, their budget, their bonus, their year end. Don't get me wrong. And so am I. But the difference is that evangelists have the other person's best interest at heart also. Uh, not only, but also, and also not secondarily. So when I tell you to use Macintosh, there's no doubt in my mind that I'm doing you a favor well, I don't know about a favor, but I'm at least not doing you an injustice by telling you to use a piece of crap. I am pretty sure you're going to be more creative and productive. And when I tell you to use Canva, I am absolutely positively certain that you will be able to create graphics in minutes, like faster than you could boot Photoshop. You can finish a graphic in Canva. So I'll tell you one thing. That's the day what I converted. I love you said that about the boot because the day I converted from Photoshop to Canva. And there's a, there's a place for them both, but yes. that particular day, I was in a rush and literally didn't have time to pull up Photoshop and find a template or whatever and start designing. And I said, this can just as well be done in Canva. Let me just go ahead and convert and do Canva right now. So, definitely. Believe. I believe. I believe. I believe. I believe. I believe. <laughs> if, if, Come if an on evangelist down. can get you to say I believe, then that evangelist has done their job, right? <laughs> Come on down, Lee Judge. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to tie a few of the things you just said together. Talking about, you know, your, your roles as, as chief evangelist and you mentioned, you know, executives and salespeople. Um, talking about what you shared about those two things and looking at your, your books and your knowledge on social media. I want to talk about how executives in, approach social media. Um, I've seen in most business organizations, there seems to be this struggle when it comes to who can really speak freely on social media about a product. <laughs> you know, executives well, are too conservative. Sales folks are too salesy. And yeah. the most creative people in marketing aren't empowered to well, be I mean, trusted. To be <laughs> the short answer to who can speak freely on social media is no one, <laughs> frankly. Um, now, for different reasons, the chief yeah. executive has fiduciary responsibility, the salesman has his or her reputation. You know, even politicians, you know, whatever you say on social media will come up in a congressional hearing one day. So mm. no one can truly speak freely. 
Um, but I will say that, you know, the advice you're looking for and the advice I am happy to give is what should be your sort of overall philosophy of social media as a business? And I like to cite what I call the NPR or Wikipedia model. Now, those two organizations provide great services, provide great amount of information. And every year or, or NPR, you know, four times a year, I swear, they hit you with the pledge drive, right? And you're listening to NPR and all of a sudden, Terry Gross or somebody, Pete Sagel says, oh, and it's our pledge time drive. And so now standing by our operators. And if you call 1-800-NPR and donate $15 a month, we will give you a free hand crank radio so that in the event of a nuclear holocaust you can find out when you're going to die call now microsoft is matching you dollar for dollar for the first thousand dollars and none of us like to hear that right but guess what not only do we tolerate the ad we actually freaking give money wikipedia is the same thing Every, every fall or so, they put out the world's ugliest banner ads featuring Jimmy Wales asking for money. And my God, you if you sat down and said, I'm going to make the ugliest ad, what should I do? You would create what Wikipedia does. Wikipedia <laughs> should use Canva, as a matter of fact. But anyway, I digress. Canva, and now, yeah. you know, when you, when you see that banner, what do you do? You donate. Wikipedia gets like, I think, 70, 80, 90 million dollars of donations. Now, why is that? Why can they put a heinous looking thing in the middle of your face and you actually donate? It's because you feel a moral obligation to reciprocate for what they have done. NPR has given you value. Wikipedia has given you value. So what I like to tell people is think like them. You want to give value. And if you give value, you're not necessarily going to ask for money in a, the sense of a donation, but you're going to ask for their patronage, for their, for their business, for tolerating their promotions at the very least. And I think that's the model. So if you are a if you are an airline, it's not about pimping your new, new, you know, leg from San Diego to San Antonio. It's about uh, here's an article about how to prepare for TSA post pandemic. You know what what happens in a TSA line now? Um, well, you know what does what does it mean to have global entry versus clear versus you know whatever? What do those three levels mean? You know, how should you pack for an overnight? Um, well, you know, what should you do if someone is going crazy on a plane? Do you get involved? Do you stay out of it? Uh, another piece of advice is, okay, so suppose you're flying to Austin. These are the 25 best food trucks in Austin. So you provide this kind of value. And then I think people feel like, huh. The airlines gave me this great idea about where to eat and how to pack and, you know, whether I should get clear or global entry. And so I don't mind when they tell me they have a new flight from San Diego to San Antonio. And so I think you have to earn the right to promote. And that's what social media should be about. And it is by providing content, not advertising. You know, you talk about that content and how the person receiving it receives that content and they want the value. Yes. And in bringing this actually even back to Canva, um, I've had a lot of creative jobs in my career. I was a professional DJ, a web designer, graphic designer, audio producer. All this creative content, in general, the end user didn't care how it was made. They just wanted that value. Yeah. Um, 
in each one of those professions, you'll find hardcore platform purists, Photoshop, people who <laughs> insist on doing things a traditional way and that you're right. not professional if you don't use the industry standard tools. So, That's bullshit. I, mean, <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that. Because I mean, I mean, eventually you have to bend, right? Eventually technology will force those purists to well, bend and give in, right? Absolutely. And I mean, eventually you have to bend. Eventually people who are not encumbered by your, you know, locked in habits are, 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 are going to be competing with you. Or if not in another company, maybe in your own company. And yeah, I mean, quite frankly, all people really care about our results. I don't, you know, I've, I've never seen anybody say, you know, guy, I need you to create a beautiful graphic for me in Photoshop. The, said mean, no one they, ever. Right. They don't <laughs> care. Yeah. They don't care if you rub two sticks together. They don't care if you use a Mac 128K and Mac Paint. Um, all they care about is the result. And so that's all you should care about. Um, you know, to, to use a surfing analogy, there are surfing purists and they believe that, you know, you need to use a short board with this kind of thing and, you know, you need to do all this kind of stuff. But really, the bottom line is for your own psyche and also for people watching, people watching you, they either see you catch the wave and have fun or you don't. They don't look mm -hmm. at, wow, look at the, he has a short board with this kind of rail and this kind of nose and this kind of tail and this kind of, you know, whatever. You either caught the ride and had fun or you didn't. That's it. I mean, it's kind of simple. I like your, your analogy. I, I used to say to when I was teaching DJs, Quit DJing for DJs, you know, because the audience doesn't care what your equipment is. They don't care how you did it. They yep. just want to have fun and enjoy themselves. Right. They're not right. analyzing it. Absolutely. Say, I mean, I could make the same case with a chef, right? So, you know, when's the last time you went into a kitchen and said, hey, you're not using the right Japanese knife, <laughs> right? You're not, you're not using the right blender. You're not using the Cuisinart, you know, whatever. You're not using the... Um, the Wolf Range or the La Cornu oven or whatever, right? Nobody gives a shit. It either tastes good or it doesn't. I mean. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I know you've seen a lot of, a lot of world-changing technologies co go from crazy ideas to proven technology. So as an investor, how does that shape the way you see new ideas and improving technology when it's presented to you today? Well, if I were intellectually honest, I would admit that when you first see something that becomes a huge success, I would say 90% of the time you have no freaking idea. And yeah. it, it's, it's only later that you say, well, of course I knew Canva would be successful. I mean, you know, honestly, let's be honest, right? Between Apple and Canva, I, I thought I was right about 30 times. Mm. I, at, at no point in those 30 companies that I started or invested in, at no point did I say, this is a dumb shit company, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is a <laughs> piss poor executive team. Every time I squeezed the trigger, I thought I was right. Well, I was wrong 27 out of 30 times. So um, now maybe it's just that guy is a loser. But I tell you what, man, <laughs> you start with Apple, you end that. with Kava. Nobody's going to call you a loser. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Well, even after you, let's just look at those three, for example. Even after you get those three and they're winners, there's still a cycle of, of learning and product development and changing oh along God, the way. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah there, there's nothing easy. <laughs> right. So I want to ask you about this. I'm a big fan of 
when I can function over form. And my favorite brand sometimes puts form over function. And right now my mouse might go dead because I can't plug it in because the plug's under the mouse. So when you... <laughs> hey, I hear you, you, man. I hear you. You've been like I, in, in the room where those decisions Like what happened? happened. <laughs> yeah. How does, that, how does that happen? And do you have any stories to tell of how you know that well, you know, there's a reason we're, we're behind gonna, that? Okay, Lee Judge, we're going to go down a deep cesspool hole right now. I mean, but you... you, you I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I'm holding on. <laughs> you opened a man cover, okay? Not me. So, <laughs> you, you bring up a good example, right? So, your mouse. Like, what in God's name was in that person's head when they said, let's make the charger so that when you plug it in charge, it's underneath and you can't use the mouse? I don't understand. Like... And then, listen, I have the latest iMac, and there are, I don't know, four USB-C terminal uh, um, Port, plugs, ports. right? Mm -hmm. Four, right? Ports. And so I look at that, and I say, okay, so, you know, I don't know about Apple, but have they ever figured out that the Dymo label printer is USB-A? And I'm using a Rodecaster Pro, right? And so... That's USB-A. I'm, I'm going from a Sony camera to HDMI cable. And, you know, that was USB-A and a USB-A. And I, I, I swear, my computers, some of my computers, this is how pathetic it is. The dongles have dongles. My dongle has a dongle. <laughs> yeah. Like, wrap your head around that. Wrap your head. Yeah. Steve Jobs, you're up there. Okay, listen to me, Steve. Why does my dongle need a dongle? I mean, you know, obviously, Tim Cook does not print Dymo labels. Obviously, he's not connecting to a roadcaster. Obviously, he does not use a DSLR because there is no more place to put the SD or micro SD card in. He doesn't use a GoPro either, right? Yeah. And so you look at all that, you say, what the hell? Now, let's be honest here. So it could be that you, Lee Judge, and me, Guy Kawasaki, we are only, we're the only two losers in the world who do all that. Everybody else, all they ever need to do is plug in one cable, ever. Power. <laughs> and, and you know what? Statistically, they might be right. It may be that of the 50 million Macs they sell a year, 49,500,000 are like that. It's freaking millennials in, sitting in Starbucks and, you know, if anything, they're plugging in their power. But there's 500,000 of us. And I tell you something, we need SD. We need mm. HDMI. Yeah. We need multiple USB-C. And my God, it would sure be nice to have USB-A so we don't have to have dongles with dongles. I, I was heading for a flight last week, and I was like, why is my backpack so damn heavy? And so I go through pulling it out. I was like, oh, crap, dongle, adapter, dongle. So, okay, I'm not going to connect to a projector this trip. Uh, no road capture this trip. Oh, wait, I might connect to my headphones. <laughs> you know, so it's like, like a magic trick in and out of the hat of what dongles I need for that trip. It's and, and on my iMac, I swear there is no headphone jack, right? So now I got to take my headphone 
which has the little stereo thing, right? The stereo mm-hmm. mini plug. And I got to find an adapter that goes from that to USB-C. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, so, yeah, so, so, end of the bitch session. So yeah. now why does that happen? Yeah. And, you know, I guess one theory is these executives, they sl- sit in a smoke-filled room and they say, well, if we took out one USB-A port, we could save 20 cents per MacBook Air and we make 2 million MacBooks Air. So 20 cents times 2 million, you know, it's a lot of ch- it's a lot of man- money. So maybe that's it. Or uh, yeah, take the... Um, Take the fact that now, until very recently, if you plugged in your MacBook to charge, from across the room, you could see that the light was green, right? The LED light is on. So you're charging. Yeah, not anymore. Not anymore, (laughs) right? Now you got to open it up and look for the Thunderbolt. And, you know, let's say you go to Europe and you, you take your hotel card out of the key out of the door you take your hotel card out of the door that little container that turns on all the power for the room right so you leave you wait you plug in your computer you know right it's charging you walk to the door you pull out the plug and you leave and you come back and it's not charged like why is that the light was on it was green when i left well how would you have noticed that because you don't exactly go to the door pull out the hotel room key, go back, back to the computer, open it up, look for the lightning bolt. That's not how people leave a room. Meanwhile, your door now, is propped open so you can see how to get back to it. Exactly. <laughs> it's the light from now, the hallway. Now, now, you know, like miracle upon miracle, if you look at today's MacBook Pro, it has a mag, you know, it has the little green light to show charging. Of course, it's using a completely different port. So everything else that you bought, every charger you have doesn't work anymore. Right. And, and then, and now it has HDMI and it has SD and it has multiple USB-C. So obviously somebody was listening for the two of us, Yeah, but I mean, I, <laughs> I, <Report> people, <laughs> I just don't get it. But again, statistically, maybe they are right. Maybe 99.99% of the people only ever stick power in one USB-C port. That, that may be true, but I'm telling you, it's hell. And it would be interesting to see the ratio of dongles to computers in the world. Because <laughs> in the Macintosh world, I bet it's, I don't know if it's one-to-one. But, maybe, but, maybe for that, that 20 cents they saved per port, they also yeah. made $2 per dongle they sold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, but I'm buying my dongles from Anchor. I'm not buying my yeah. dongles from Anchor. Because yeah. if you yeah. bought an Apple dongle, you know, it would be like 200 bucks, right? Yeah. I mean, I go through three throwaway it's, Anchor. And so, you, you know, <laughs> you're going down an even deeper hole. So I read these stories in CNET or Verve or, you know, whatever, and Apple Car on the horizon. Apple Car loses executive. Apple Car gains Tesla executive. I mean, Apple car is the last car in the world I would buy because car dongle then. Yeah. Well, first of all, okay. So let's just be honest here. So let's say there's an entire infrastructure of Tesla chargers and electrify America and charge point and all that. Right now, if Apple 
decides to not use a proprietary form of electricity, which is a big if, but let's just assume they don't. I guarantee you that the Apple car will contain a port that requires a $2,000 dongle to work <laughs> with the Tesla charger and the EA charger. I guarantee you. And I guarantee you that Apple car will be smoking fast and sexy and really great, but it can only go 75 miles. <laughs> I, I guarantee you, but it's going to be the best freaking 75 miles of your life. That Once is literally a day. the car version of a MacBook Pro. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, let's face it. Like Apple executives, I, the, the, I let's take the Apple Watch. Now, I don't know about you, but when I use my Apple Watch for activities like surfing, which is a highly active sport, tracking waves, if I go out for two or three hours, I use half the battery. Okay, so the question is, if you are an Apple user, and I like to have a watch on my wrist 24 by seven, sometimes when I'm awake, sometimes in the middle of the night, I just wanna go like that and see what time it is, right? Well, you have to make a choice. Either your Apple watch can track your surfing or it can be available at night. But you can't have both because, God forbid, somebody at Apple didn't figure out that there's 24 hours in a day. <laughs> so, I mean, these are things that I just, I don't understand, but. This is well, not the point of your podcast. <laughs> well, no, but it's it's interesting though, and, I, and the 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 hard part is not to join in and just keep on going because <laughs> <laughs> I have the same. Not to Lee, mention, Lee, this is looking Lee. me in the eye right now with this port, so you know. <laughs> yeah, let yourself go, Lee. Just let her rip, baby. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah. Meanwhile, I'm also yeah. We we made these complaints, but I'm still a fanboy. I still I'm still surrounded by my Mac no, products. Yeah. Don't get yeah. me wrong. I mean, I have. Yeah. Let's see. I own a. I own three iMacs, two PowerBooks, two iPads, one phone, one watch, and at any point, I have bought about eight tags. I only know where four of them are, but, <laughs> but I bought eight. I didn't know how many I had until I had a problem with my 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 um, internet, and I was on the phone with with Xfinity, and the lady says, "My God, you got fifty devices." And I was like, "That's not possible. There's a problem here." <laughs> Seriously, fifty five zero? Well, because you, you, the thermostats, the echo, oh, yeah, the you know all those doorknobs. Everything, you know? And then I realized that out of those, probably 15 were Apple products. You know, so, so I was like, damn, are there that many things going on around here? So, yeah. You better hope it doesn't cause cancer because, man. <laughs> I, I am glowing right now. And, and the bad part is Amazon knows it. They know I'm glowing because they probably know the exact amount of glow I have right now because they're, they're measuring it. <laughs> So, I, I speaking of Amazon, man, I, I subscribe to a kind of water <laughs> that had nothing to do with anything. But yeah, I found <laughs> I found this great water in aluminum cans. I'm trying to deplastic our house. So can we go meanwhile, down another rattle? Well, meanwhile, somebody's <laughs> trying to deluminize their house. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true too. But it's yeah. better to be using aluminum cans than plastic bottles, right? I hope yeah, that's we, my assumption. <laughs> Yeah, because aluminum cans are kind of infinitely recyclable, whereas plastic bottles, you know, for all the for all the news you hear about, someone figured out a 
plastic eating bacteria or they figured out how to make, you know, jackets out of plastic bottles or whatever. It's a tiny percentage of plastic bottles that actually end up getting recycled. And I think yeah. aluminum cans is a much higher number. I used to work in the industry. I, have, I was a marketing director for a recycling firm and yeah. I got totally messed up on the whole industry because I saw the inside of how it worked and saw how uh, most of what was quote unquote recycled was not actually recycled. Um, where does it go? China? Industry. Huh? It goes to China or Africa or someplace like that? Well, that was the thing. I mean, the, the culmination of that was once upon a time, and I guess it was in the late or early 2000s, when the plant just piled up all this plastic. And we're like, why is there a warehouse full of plastic, some of it drying out in the sun? Problem was China wasn't buying it. And so meanwhile, you have a, a city with a contract for a whole year to collect this plastic but the, the collector in the middle has nowhere to sell it to. And so what can't happened? Be caught, well, they can't be caught going to the landfill with it. Can't do that because they'll be seen as throwing it away. They'll be against their contract. China's not buying it. So it just piled up and piled up and piled up. Needless to say, they, they're bankrupt. They went, they went out of business because um, they got caught in the middle. They got caught as a middleman. They had paper, plastics, and as you mentioned, aluminum. The metal was the only thing they could move for a while. Um, but the plastics... It was too dependent on the markets and the city huh. contracts were written in a way that says, you agree, you will take it from us and not put it in the garbage. The <laughs> problem was well, that holding period. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So, wow. Yeah. So that's, so when the wife says, why aren't we recycling? I was like, well, it really doesn't work that way. So huh. we're not going to do it. Yeah. So a lot of caveat there. So we talked about products for a minute. I want to pivot back a little bit. Um, and talk to the, the listeners to the podcast who are, who are entrepreneurs. And I often hear from investor friends, and I know you're, you're an investor, um, that they rarely, if ever, are interested in service-based companies, uh, I guess for scalability reasons, unless they have productized yeah. their service. Yeah. So what can service-based companies learn, perhaps, from product-based companies in regards to scaling and becoming more investable? Well, I have, I have several thoughts here. So first of all, one must separate what is a venture capital fundable company from a viable company. And if you can only have one, <laughs> I suggest you pick viability, not mm. fundability. So, for example, some dumbass social media, you know, idea to, I don't know what, you know, AARP for seniors. I don't know what, you know, mm -hmm. th that is a fundable idea. You say, well, Facebook has, I don't know, 12 billion people, but um, seniors on Facebook, they're looking for someplace that's safer, bigger, I don't know, whatever, right? So we believe there's a niche of seniors and AARP is going to support us and blah, blah, blah. So that's a fundable idea. That's not a viable idea. I mean, Devin Nunes says, I'm going to create a, with, with Donald Trump, I'm going to create a social media for QAnon and American Nazi Party members. <laughs> and, you know, that's, guess, that's not fundable or viable, I guess. But anyway, so the, the important thing for entrepreneurs is to separate fundability from viability. You may have a perfectly viable company. Maybe you just want to sell socks or maybe you just want to make the best chili or maybe you want to best make the, make the best hot sauce. I believe you could be two, three, four, five. If you hit a home run, $20 million company. I believe that. You can have a really nice existence, 
sell it for 20 million when you're you know 60 years old life is good that would have never been a fundable company a venture capitalist is not saying god if i only own the hot sauce market you know, if I only own the T-shirt business, if I only own the web consulting business. And so that's what I'm trying to communicate to people is the venture capital game is a very specific game. It is for companies that could become the next Apple, Google, Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, or Canva. And those kinds of business have to have tens of millions of customers. There is no way that many of these companies that are service companies are going to be tens of millions of customers. Now, you know, maybe if you have a dog walking service, you might do the calculation. 300 million Americans, one in four owns a dog, 75 million dogs. Not all of those dogs are with millennials who need them to be walked, but you know, let's just say at least the total market is 75 million. Let's be conservative. Maybe you can get 8 million dogs to be your customers, 8 million dogs, you know, X per month. Maybe you come up with 100, 200 million in revenue. You know, I can kind of understand that, but even that's a stretch. And so my, my recommendation for um, entrepreneurs is you have to consider what kind of company you have. And it may not be a venture capital deal, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it and it doesn't mean it's not viable. If you wanted to create the ultimate store for selling, you know, jackets, jackets.com is probably not a venture capital funded business, but it is probably a viable business. And mm. so you need to separate those two. And then people need to remember that the purpose of a company is to create customers, not to raise money. I think many entrepreneurs, they get so obsessed with raising money. They think once you raise money, that's the hard part. It's done. The hard part begins when you raise money. And, and, you know, if, and if they have this fantasy that they're going to raise smart money, that's going to add value. Well, I have some oceanfront property in Arizona to sell them too. <laughs> um, so, you know, the venture capital game is for very rarefied air. And I think venture capitalists fund, I don't know, maybe 5,000 companies a year. So there's 5,000 companies a year, but something like 25 million companies start a year. So where did the other 24,995,000 companies go? Guess what? They didn't go to Sand Hill. So that's my take on it. Venture capital to me should be the last resort, not the first resort. It's a very, very different game. That, that's a very good lesson for service companies, especially when they're, you know, some of them, in fact, when I first began one of my recent companies, I was reading all these startup books and every single startup book was about raise capital, you know, get a company and then sell it. And I'm like, well, what if I'm not, you know, first of all, I had a service company you yep. know, we, we produce content for other businesses. So it isn't like something you can go out and get in that for it. But so finally, I just put down all the dozens of startup books I had because it didn't apply to a service company. And I like how you, you made it. You just made it clearer for me that I had a, a viable company. It was definitely viable. Just wasn't. Fun well, I'll tell you, even better news is let's say you have 
at the beginning, you have the insight that this is a viable but not fundable company. Hallelujah. You're ahead of 95% of people right there, right? So now let's suppose you create this viable service company that you didn't think venture capitalists would touch. And then hallelujah, lo and behold, it really takes off. And maybe along the way you discover a product. So a viable company is guess what? Viable. And as long as it's viable, you're in the freaking game. And if you're in the freaking game, maybe you will become fundable. Maybe you will discover a product. Who knows what's going to happen? But it only happens if you're viable. So the key is to be viable. If you're viable, then all sorts of opportunities may end up. But if you're not fundable and not viable, that means you're dead. <laughs> and then there are no opportunities. So always be thinking viable. Like, you know, I have a podcast, right? A, a podcast is not a venture capital deal. It never will be a venture capital deal. Now, maybe if I create such a good podcast and then I bring other podcasters into my fold and blah, 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 blah. Maybe I could end up being a modern media company. Don't hold your breath, Lee. But I mean, I'm, I'm making this bullshit up. But, you know, it all starts with viability, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to get to the podcast for the moment and I want to get there through getting a little bit deeper into learning about your personal experiences. Cause there's so much wisdom there that you know, we, I could, <laughs> I, I could dig into that all day. And I, I know uh, I just recently purchased your book wise guy. I haven't gotten into it yet, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, so if I ask him something about the book and you want to just say, Hey Lee, it's in the book. No, tell you no, I don't do that. <laughs> I don't know you know, who's, you know, who's, you know, who gives answers like that? Exactly. It's people who are so short-sighted that they think, Oh Lee, it's in the book and your listeners are going to go run out and buy the book. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. So I, I would rather tell you everything I can about the book and then maybe you'll buy it. But even if you don't, it doesn't really matter. Um, see, right now I'm 67 years old and I basically I'm on a mission to help people become remarkable. And whether you buy my book to become remarkable, listen to my podcast to become remarkable, whether I invest in your company to make you remarkable, advise you, whatever, I don't really care. It's just, I want to make people, when I die, I want to people, I want people to say, man, that guy empowered a lot of people. That's, that is beautiful. And, and you've seen more and done more and can drop names with the best in the world. So I can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. That I can do. <laughs> but when you speak, you're the most, most humble and modest person. And I've even heard you say, I'm no big deal. So I am no big deal. Is that just your personality or do you have a methodology to staying grounded? Shit. <laughs> I think it's answering that. <laughs> that's the answer right there. <laughs> that's the answer right there. I mean, listen, if, if in, in a sense, it's almost oxymoronic. If you said to a person, you're so humble. Do you have a methodology to be humble? I would say that proves arrogance, right? That like, right there. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I figured out to, to be humble. Exactly. Right. Right. In fact, I'm selling a book about it and I have a, I have a <laughs> seminar and you know, <laughs> and for a million dollars a year, you have 365 day access to my humility. Um, it, I listen, well, well, one thing is to have a a very intelligent wife who just calls your bullshit. That, that I think that's probably ninety percent of the battle. Um, but 
you know, I was just never brought up that way. I don't take myself too serious. And I, 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 I listen, I, I don't want you to think I'm like some kind of humble guy walking around just staring at the ground all day. All right. So, I, you know, you I drive a German, some. I drive a German car, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, so I don't know. I just, I've had a very good life. And, you know, not not Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, billionaire life, but I've but had you, a very good life. you can call life. those guys, though. That yeah. <laughs> I've been very fortunate. I have, you know, I, I have wife 1.0. She has husband 1.0. We have four kids. And they still hang out with us. <laughs> and so, you know... I'm basically healthy. I've kind of lost my hearing, but you know, that's because of all the dumb shit pitches I've had to listen to in my life. But um, are you saying that some of the pitches were so bad they ate away at your ears? <laughs> <laughs> it's an occupational hazard, man. I should get OSHA for this. But anyway, I'd love, I need to, hear, I love to hear you tell somebody, look, I, I hear your pitch, but it is so bad it is literally eating away at the, <laughs> the cells in my ear. <laughs> my brain. Yeah. 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 Well, you mentioned uh, family. I want to ask, because I think that a person's family is is core to who they end up being. I mean, it's it may be, they may diverge here or there, but I think it's definitely a, a starting point. Um, so I'm about to dig into your book, and whenever I read an inspirational or self-help book, I'm reminded, usually I, f- I hear stories that remind me of things my dad taught me. Yeah. Um, and he once told me that if he lost everything today, he would recover in a short amount of time. And I asked him, how, how do you figure that? He said, well, I'll give you an example. Um, I'll ask someone if I can rake their leaves from the yard with their rake. And then when they pay you, you buy your <laughs> own rake. And then when you rake enough yards, you hire somebody to work with you, your friend. And then they say, you know, you have a landscaping company. And so I've always had, kind of had that story in my head from my dad <laughs> teach me that. And it, your your so dad many- is a better dad than mine. Or no, <laughs> I said that wrong. Your dad is a better dad than I am a dad. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I lost everything today, I would, I would, I don't know. I don't, I can't tell you I could get it all back. <laughs> I think, I think you would. I think you would. Nah. Well, I mean, how, how does maybe some of your upbringing and some of your background affect how you operate today? Uh, I think it affects completely how I operate today. I, w- I was brought up with a sense of, you know, that, um, that, you got to earn what you get that even earning what you get luck plays a great deal role in where you are. You know, the difference between me and somebody who's starving in some basement worried about getting shot by a Russian is just the flip of a coin. There's no reason why, you know, I'm just dog shit lucky. Now there may be people luckier than me, but there are, plenty of people who are not as lucky as me. And so I don't, I don't think, I don't wake up in the morning and think I deserve this. You know, I don't, I'm not like, oh, I deserve to live in Mar-a-Lago. I deserve to have my tower named after me. I don't believe that at all. <laughs> I think I am just freaking lucky. Now, you know, I am lucky, but I also worked my ass off. Because there are people who are lucky who don't work their ass off, right? Mm-hmm. So when you are when you have both, you really become powerful. <laughs> but you well, have it, to, you know, it's it that combination doesn't always come together. 
Yeah. Well, so, in, in your career of working your ass off, you've made a lot of pivots, and a lot of them have been kind of ballsy in terms of making a pivot. So is there, any, is there anything that kind of signals to you that maybe this is a time for a pivot or gives you confidence that, it's, that, that a pivot makes well, sense? Well, you're giving me too much credit for analytical ability. So I, I've from the outside looking in, I admit that you could think, wow, guy, you are so freaking smart. So you, you figured out personal computers and then you pivoted to software and then you pivoted to internet and then you pivoted to social media and then you pivoted to software as a service canva and then you pivoted to media creation podcasting if you want to believe that god bless you i am not going to change your mind that i am so smart and i made all these great decisions but if you want to hear the truth, the truth is many times I was in the right place at the right time among the right people. And many times I just fell in love with stuff. I fell in love with the Apple II. I fell in love with Macintosh. I fell in love with Canva. I fell in love with Motorola phones when I worked with Google. I fell in love with a lot of things. I fell in love with podcasting. Now, don't get me wrong. I fell in love with a lot of things that didn't work out either. More, probably. So to, to think that I sat down and did an analytical McKinsey's Boston Consulting Group, Bain, magic quadrant, two-by-two two matrix to analyze my plans is a falsehood. I just fell in love. And thank God, every once in a while, I fell in love with a winner. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the secret to my life. Well, you've been consistent. I mean, you you, you gave numbers like twenty seven out of thirty, and those, those yeah. three were the winners. But maybe too many people only try three, and never make that's it true. to thirty. That's true. <laughs> but you know what? Um, now let's let's you know you saying that you saying that I believe that that is statistically probably true, but. Let, let us, in a rare moment of humility, let us also factor in the, f the fact that I have been fortunate enough to be able to take 27 things that backed, right? Mm -hmm. So if I were born in object poverty, where I, or abject poverty, what's the word? If I were born in deep poverty, <laughs> maybe I would not have had the opportunity to swing 27 or 30 times. Maybe I would be so busy working two jobs. Maybe I would be a single dad. You know, maybe I would have health issues. Maybe I would not have been fortunate enough where my family made a sacrifice so that I could go to a private school, so that I could go into Stanford, so I could meet the guy who gave me a job at Apple, and the rest is history. So just saying that, well, you know, the reason why a guy is successful is because he swung 30 times and he connected three times. You also have to really seriously ask the question, but how come he was lucky enough to swing 30 times? Because not everybody has the opportunity to swing 30 times. I admire that you, you see that because too many people, and this is just me, me venting is that they get to a certain level or they, or they started a certain level and have no vision of other scenarios that other people are in, have no understanding of their opportunity or of their, their path they took that, that was their path, and everybody doesn't have that same opportunity, yeah. that same path. 
I mean, you you think that Jared Kushner and Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, you think they're sitting around thinking, oh, man, I am lucky that, you know. <laughs> it's like telling a fish about water. You think that right? ever entered into their brain? <laughs> yeah, it's explaining water, water to a fish. It's always been in there, so it's just some assumption. <laughs> yeah. Um, I won't keep you much longer, Guy. I mean, I'm really enjoying talking with you. Um, you mentioned your podcast, though, and... Um, you know, for me, the most fulfilling thing about doing this podcast is to share with my audience the lives and insights of and stories of people sure. like you. Um, and I've heard you say that you were born to podcast, which made me smile when I heard you say that. But very few people have a contact list of remarkable people to That's reach right, out to. That's right, baby. Like you did. Nobody can touch me there. <laughs> that, well, so, I guess Joe Rogan can, but... Well, I don't, I don't know about nowadays. It might not pick up the phone like they will for you. Um, <laughs> But so your podcast is called Remarkable People. So tell me about that and what, you know, what okay. your goals are behind it. So Remarkable People podcast is one-on-one -on -one interviews between me and a remarkable person. And just FYI, my goal is to bring out the remarkableness in terms of experience, education, inspiration, whatever it is of the other person. This is not about me positioning myself as remarkable. I am just the person who's the catalyst to get the other person's remarkableness out, okay? Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to do is I am on a mission to make people remarkable. And I figured out that, you know, guy, you are not the monopoly of wisdom in the world. Duh. So people can learn from Jane Goodall. They can learn from Neil deGrasse Tyson. They can learn from Christy Yamaguchi, Ronnie Lott, Steve Wolfram, Steven Pinker, Scott Galloway, Gary Vaynerchuk, Seth Godin, Angela Duckworth, Katie Milkman, Bob Cialdini, David Ocker. I can go on and on and on. And so I have basically a couple hundred of the most remarkable people in the world Vivek Murthy, current Surgeon General, on my podcast, talking about their experiences, what they learned, how they did things, et cetera, et cetera. And the whole point, and, and if you listen to my podcast, it is 95% the guests, 5% me. This is not me and somebody shooting the shit for two hours about, you know, as peers. This is, I am trying to get them on the record and with all their information it ain't about me spouting off of all my theories at all and i really consider it, it is the best work of my career and if you're an entrepreneur i would be astounded if you find a better collection other than your own podcast of information for entrepreneurs because i have people like wozniak I had the founder of Poopery. Don't laugh at that. That woman has done a great job. Hint Water. Uh, Sarah Fry, who sells more pumpkins than anybody in, in the world. You know, uh, I just go down the line of particularly female entrepreneurs. Uh, Madison Reed, the hair uh, dye um, mogul. And, and so I have entrepreneurs. And then, so I have entrepreneurs as inspiration. I also have people who can give you tips as entrepreneurs. For example, Bob Cialdini, the godfather of influence. David Ocker, the godfather of branding. Angela Duckworth, the godmother of grit. And 
I just go down the line because I, I one of the things that has enabled me to be a good podcaster is I have been on the firing line for 30 or 40 years. Right. So I have been an entrepreneur. I know what it takes to screw up a product introduction. I know what it takes to like not know who to hire, how to hire, who to fire, all that kind of stuff. I have been there so I can ask the questions. Whereas I would say as someone who's been a professional journalist or, a, you know, a professional host his or her entire career doesn't because they've never had to. They've never had to raise money, right? They could, they've never had to beg a customer to try it. They've never been rejected day after day by customers. And so when you don't have that kind of experience because you weren't on the firing line, it's very hard to ask the really insightful question. I mean, you can ask the question like, what was it like to be an entrepreneur, right? That's how NPR does it. What was it like to be an entrepreneur? That's a total bullshit question. What's the entrepreneur going to say? It was shit, Terry. I was rejected <laughs> nine times out of 10. 300 venture capitalists turned me down. Finally, you know, I just like scraped together what I could and then I lied to my parents and, you know, I, this is what I did to do it. That's what you want to hear. And so that's what I get to. That's, that's what I get to. This is kind of meta because as I was looking at your podcast, yeah, I realize I'm kind of like the very base base of the mountain of what you're doing because I'm talking with you. You're a remarkable person to me. And we've even, a couple of people you've interviewed, I've actually interviewed as well. And, yeah. <laughs> and the, the fun part is, though, someone asked me, and I, I never did this to intend to be an interviewer or to, yeah. to say, you know, I, I don't have any method behind this other than I ask questions that I just simply want to know. You know, I don't do a ton of research. That's other than a know method. Who the person is. Maybe that's a method, um, because if I see you somewhere speaking or video, I'll go, why would he say that? And like, you know what? Make a note. Maybe I'll get a chance to ask him one day, you know? <laughs> and I think, you know, I want to know it. Does anybody else want to know it? Then that makes it a, a viable true. question to ask. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I and, think that is a, a good algorithm. You know, if I want to know it, somebody else want to know it. Assuming that you're not an idiot. I don't mean you. Well, I mean, assuming that the person thinking that is not an idiot. True, yeah. true that, true that. And it's typically <laughs> within within industry, too. Because, I mean, like I asked you about the, the service versus product in terms of funding. I really wanted to know that. I wanted to know Guy's yeah. view on that because I've been there. And it isn't just a question that I, you know, got from someone else's question. I actually <laughs> wanted to know the damn answer. That's why I asked you. <laughs> so I, I really appreciate that. Um, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad I was able to... Uh, switch my doctor's appointment off <laughs> and actually yeah. do this. Do you, do you know that? So like yesterday I canceled, right? Uh -huh. And then, um, the next opening was July. I don't know if that's because <laughs> of me or you like, this is April, like <laughs> May, June, July. Like what happened for three months? Are you like on a sabbatical? Yeah. They're on vacation, I guess. Oh, you mean for my schedule or theirs? The I, I don't know if it was my schedule or your schedule, but oh. I canceled us yesterday because of my medical thing. Oh, and yeah. then what came back was, okay, so we're going to do it July 6th, uh, July 6th. Oh. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I asked my assistant to only book one guest per week to record. Oh, um, and so she said, "Well, you're booked out to July." And I said, "Oh, okay." But you know, for guy, whenever guy's available, I'll be available. So <laughs> I'll do two in one week, two in one day if I need to. So. <laughs> it's, it's, I've it's, done two a day. It's exhausting. 
Yeah, I don't like to do two a day. I barely like to do yeah. two a week because I want to make sure. Often I have, you know, I want to read their book. I want to know something about yeah. them more. So See, because, you do do research. You don't just show up. Yeah, but I do the research to get my own questions, not to, to really understand the person. So what's the difference? <laughs> I guess maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, what I, mean, I what I find hard is, you know, sometimes I do two a day or one a day, two days in a row. And like one guy would be maybe a black activist, right? And the next day, it's a female opera conductor, and and, and then and then the next week it's uh, Christy Yamaguchi figure skater, and then the next day it's marine biologist who runs the Monterey Bay Aquarium. So I have to be able to you ask an research. intelligent question of a world of a figure skater. The next day, a marine biologist. The next day, an astrophysicist near the Grass Tyson. And then, the, you know, I mean, that's yeah. that's the nature you of my research. life. You got yeah. research. I mean, at but least I, me. If, but, if I ever had weak moment, I could ask another marketing question that I may yeah, have asked yeah, 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 ten yeah, episodes yeah. ago. But it, in your case, no, you that, got research. No, I, I, I. Now you could make the case that your podcast is better focused. So maybe that's you know, a better way to do it. But literally I'm back to back marine biologist, figure skater, you know, Ronnie Lott, free safety of the 49ers to Neil deGrasse Tyson. And if nothing else, this podcast will probably at least delay my dementia because <laughs> there is no freaking way that I'm just sitting around watching Fox all day. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that, your, your mind is actually working and growing it, instead of my, my mind is working harder and faster than it ever has in its life. So, mm. well, let me give a before we wrap up a quick peek behind the curtain here. This is a kind of meta. We talked about you know the guests you have, and you're my guest right now. I'm curious. This might get me in trouble here. I'm curious, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll cut it out if you if you say something that, that I, <laughs> it hurts. Maybe I won't. Why? What? What encouraged you to actually join me on this podcast? <laughs> okay. So, I suppose that I could give you a question that I did an extensive intellectual analysis of your demographic reach, of your content. That. I listened to past episodes. I did the research. I looked in your LinkedIn profile. I checked if you on Wikipedia. I asked for other people who we have shared as common guests what they thought of you. If you want to believe that, God bless you. God bless you. There's tooth fairy, unicorns fart, pixie dust too. All of those things are true. So why did I accept you? Because, frankly, I don't freaking remember. I don't remember. I just, I get these requests, and if it's decent, and if it shows some specificity and some relevance, you know, it's like not like I'm a hairdresser and I want to interview you for my podcast, although even that I might take just out of curiosity. <laughs> so basically I, I kind of have this attitude in life. Like I default to yes. So I'm yes until no. And so, you know, I, I am not making this up. Yeah. I don't remember your pitch at all. Yeah. I just told my assistant, just say yes, go ahead, let's do it. Because like right now, I'm in build mode for my podcast. So I don't mm -hmm. I don't know if you have 550 of your relatives, 5,000, 50,000, 500,000, or 5 million listeners. 
I don't know if you're the black Joe Rogan. For all I know, you're the freaking Jack Blow Rogan, okay? <laughs> and so I say yes because I figure, well, he's going to have more than his relatives. And so, you, you know, you just never know. I like your answer what? because I'm often talking to podcasters or people who want to do a podcast. Yeah. And they say they have problems getting guests. And I'm like, are you asking? Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because, you know, people, I mean, people who understand content, we understand. In fact, I have a seminar, <laughs> I don't have a book, on being content, helping executives be the content that other people consume. And right now, podcasting is a great way to do that. Well, um, I'll, I'll give you a little dirty little secret is that, you know, you you find out there's one firm called Fortier, F-O-R-T-I-E-R, and they handle most of the business books, most of the nonfiction books, okay? Mm-hmm. And so guess what? When When even Neil deGrasse Tyson is coming out with a new book, his PR firm is looking for podcasts for him to be on. As humble as Guy Kawasaki's little podcast is, Neil deGrasse Tyson will come on your podcast when he wants to pimp a book. Hello, freaking Louia, man, take it. So that that is tip number one. And, and I will also tell you that uh, for me, this is this is going to weave into your story about just saying yes and you know just ask. So I've come to believe it's not who you know; it's who knows of you. This is a big difference. So I'll tell you a story. So how did I get Jane Goodall on my podcast? Because I get an email from someone who runs the Palo Alto TEDx. I don't know who she is. She knows who I am because I'm in Silicon Valley and Apple and all that. Mm -hmm. So she says, you know, I've seen you in action, blah, blah, blah. I have Jane Goodall coming and I need a moderator. Would you like to be a moderator? Well, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> Jane Goodall. I canceled yeah. a paid speech for that. It cost me tens of thousands of dollars to introduce Jane Goodall. So I interviewed Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall and I become friends. So I asked her to be my guest on my podcast. She's the first person I ever put on my podcast. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's just say when you start with Jane Goodall, it's all downhill from there, right? Because, yeah. I mean, nobody's going to say to you, so who have who's been on your podcast before? Uh, Jane Goodall. Uh, I've never heard of her. Is she a chef? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my my client likes to be on podcasts with famous people who have credibility, and I don't know who Jane Goodall is. That just let's just say that didn't happen, right? So you get Jane Goodall, then you get Margaret Atwood, then you get Ariana Huffington, then you get Steve Wozniak. And, you know, further down the line, you get Neil deGrasse Tyson and you get Steve Wolfram and you get MacArthur Award winners. And pretty soon they're they're coming out of the woodwork trying to be on your podcast. I have the opposite problem now. Now, every day I get two or three pitches from, you know, how you're going to love the... I hope you got time. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I I'm feeling you on that because I, I get... After our, my first season... The script flipped. It went from us looking to having to turn down all these people trying to get on the podcast. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, I, I get pitches from every from people every day. You know, I, I'm Joe Blow, or hi, I'm Joe Blow's publicist. And he has just written a book called The Blow Away. It's published by Blow Press. And he's a 27-year-old millennial who has already figured out how to do almost six figures in management consulting and leadership training. So we think that he should be on your podcast. He could add a lot to your podcast. 
And sometimes I just give it to my virtual assistant and tell them, nope. I, literally, that's my answer, N-O-P-E, and she takes it from there. But sometimes when I'm in a bad mood, I toy with the person. And I say, so, you know, pardon me, but I haven't heard of Joe Blow. Perhaps you could explain to me why he's as remarkable as Jane Goodall, Steve Wozniak, Margaret Atwood, and Ariana Huffington and Christy Yamaguchi. And that ends the email thread. (laughs) Yeah, these pitch companies, they don't do crap of research, I don't think. No, they don't do shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like... Because they should look at your list of people and say, well, you know, this guy... Joe Blow, you can't stand, he can't be in this list of people. So why, why <laughs> But you know what? Pitching? But I got to tell you, every once in a while, though, you know, don't get me wrong. My podcast is called Remarkable People, Not Famous People. Yeah. So, you know, w- would I take uh, an LGBTQ activist that if you're not in the LGBTQ community, but let's say she's a LGBTQ or he or they is a LGBTQ activist in Florida fighting Ron DeSantis. Okay. Never heard of her. I'm not LGBTQ. I never heard of her, him, they, whatever it is. She is, they is, you know what I mean? Anyway, I don't want to get like in trouble (laughs) anyway. So I never heard of this person. Shit. Yeah. I would take that person. Taking on Ron DeSantis, taking on the governor of, you know, Texas. Hell yes, I would take that person. That's remarkable to me. So I'm going to finish off with one great story that illustrates this whole concept. I don't know if you've heard of Angela Duckworth, but she's the woman who wrote the book Grit, MacArthur Award winner for her her work Grit. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to get her. So, you know, I send an email to info at AngelaDuckworth.com, you know, whatever it is on her website, because I don't know her. I'm praying she recognizes my name from info at AngelaDuckworth.com. Nothing happens. Angela mm-hmm. Duckworth doesn't know who Guy Kawasaki is. Okay. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, it's not like I'm Jared Kushner or somebody or Mitch McConnell's son. So a few weeks go by and kind of the, the Lee Judge phenomena. I, I accept going as a guest on a podcast from some podcast named shoot the moon or over the moon or beyond the moon or i can't even remember so i'm in this podcast you know we're on this thing we're starting the recording and she says uh, let me give you a little background I say okay because you know you know you know my rigid process for determining what podcast to go (laughs) (laughs) so so i'm in this podcast i'm freaking in the middle of this podcast lee i'm not thinking about being on this podcast i'm not considering i am in the podcast and she says well i'm a 16 year old girl in arkansas and i'm in intermediate school and this is my podcast over the moon shoot the moon blue moon whatever the hell it was and i'm on the other side thinking okay what the hell have you just done like why are you going to take an hour of your life talking to a 15 year old girl in arkansas or alabama or wherever it doesn't matter it could be california it doesn't really matter mm-hmm. but come to find out she asked very very good questions like very good like better than most adult interviewers all right so then at the end of this podcast i say to her who else have you had on this podcast and she says, well, I just had Angela Duckworth. My freaking jaw hits the jaw. My freaking jaw hits the floor. I said, you had Angela Duckworth. How did you get Angela Duckworth? She goes, well, I don't know. I wrote to info at Angela Duckworth. And I said, I'm a 16-year-old girl in Alabama with a podcast. And she said, she'd come on. 
And I'm like, okay, my jaw is now beneath the floor, right? <laughs> yeah. I said, so that's how you got Angela Duckworth? She goes, yeah, I don't know. I guess she likes to support young girls in podcasts, so she came on my podcast. I said, well, can you write to Angela Duckworth for me and tell her to put me on the podcast? I mean, I'd like her on my podcast. She said, sure, I know Angela now. And so wow. she introduces me to Angela, and Angela responds to me because of, you know, shoot the moon girl. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got Angela Duckworth on my podcast. Wow. So the moral of this story is indiscriminately help other people because you just never know how it's going to pay off. That's right. <laughs> wow. So for all I know, okay, so I'm working this angle. I'm going to, I'm going to make this work for all I know, Lee judge, you are like the godson of Stacey Abrams. Okay. <laughs> and I'm telling you my number one draft pick, for anybody I could have on my podcast right now is Stacey Abrams. So I'm going to someday find somebody and Lee Judge, you're going to say, Stacey Abrams is my godmother. My God. <laughs> you know, I'm from, a, I'm originally from, my family's originally from Georgia. We were neighbors and she used to, she used to hold me on her lap. And guy, I had, I could call her right now and get you with her and she will go on your podcast. I promise you, Grandma Stacy Abrams will do it. Someday that's gonna happen. Tell me that's you know what, true. Guy, Is it true for you? I might actually make that happen for you, so don't be surprised. <laughs> you see? And then, you know, I'm, and I'm then in like Atlanta, six, and so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right here. Yeah. I can make, make it happen for you. <laughs> okay, so in six months from now, I'm gonna say, okay, you know how I got Stacy Abrams? The most important person who probably saved democracy in 2020 you know how i got her because <laughs> i accepted a podcast with this marketing guy named lee judge i had no idea who he was i didn't know if he had five listeners 50 50 000, or 50 million but i said yes and come to find out he's stacy abrams godson and he got her for me and that's how life works punk and that's what you should believe so there you go <laughs> wonderful <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. We will, that I can't end on a better note than that guy. Man. No, you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Lee you you have a Amazing. good Thursday. You too, man. Thanks again for listening. Uh, I mean, for joining. I was telling listeners, thanks for them to listening. Um, and if you want to see Guy and I, this has been a, a hilarious conversation. So you might want to see this one. Uh, you can see, <laughs> you can see the podcast and all the others on contentmaster.com. Guy, thanks again, man. I love the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Business of Marketing podcast, a show brought to you by ContentMonster.com, the producer of B2B digital marketing content. Show notes can be found on ContentMonster.com as well as aleejudge.com. To continue the conversation, be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform.